0: the Iran podcast I'm your host Nigo Mortazavi a journalist and analyst based in Washington DC and a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy Today we'll talk about the Israel Gaza war that's currently happening in the Middle East and Iran's role and its proxies in this conflict and the possibility of this conflict turning into a major regional war My guest today is Trita Parsi, Executive Vice President at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft here in Washington. He's also Associate Professor at Georgetown University. Trita, welcome back to the Iran Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me again.
0: It's great to have you back. Let's first talk about what happened on October 7th, when Hamas basically breached what seemed like an impenetrable southern border of israel and committed what we see in images very violent and gruesome attack on not only the military but also civilians in various locations in southern israel talk about how this happened and essentially what went down that day
1: well it's clearly a a very significant intelligence and military failure on the Israeli side to allow something like this to happen. Of course, in addition to a political failure of not recognizing that as long as the occupation continues and Gaza remains under occupation, as long as Israel is in control of all of the borders. So just leaving physically does not mean that the occupation has ended. But as long as the occupation continues, and unfortunately the risk for violence is going to remain strong, Uh, particularly when there is no political process that is leading to a better situation. But if we just focus on the military and intelligence failure, um, it is indeed a very surprising development. Even in the worst case scenario that the Israelis had planned for, they had thought that in the worst, worst case, if, if Hamas were to attack, they would be able to potentially take up to five towns or kibbutzes. But here we're talking about Hamas reaching as many as about 20. And that is a very significant difference, of course. And it shows uh, a combination of bad military planning, bad intelligence, laxness, but also a a significant underestimation of Hamas's capabilities.
0: How does this tie into Israel's domestic scene? We know the government of Benjamin Netanyahu has had... Uh, domestic protests, a lot of challenges inside the country would also focus on the West Bank with the settlers, the army, and conflict with the Palestinians of that area, which is actually not Hamas-led. But how does this surprise element or the failure of this breach on the southern border tie into what's been happening in Israel on the domestic front?
1: Well, it ties into it, of course. Because at the end of the day, you had a significant blame game starting as soon as this attack occurred. Many blaming it on Netanyahu, saying that he's been playing politics. He has created a situation in which not enough attention was brought onto this issue. Instead, resources were being used to protect Israeli settlers as they were attacking Palestinians uh, in the West Bank accusations against Netanyahu as well because of the fact that there's been a bit of a preference from his end to see Hamas in power because Hamas is not interested in a two-state solution. And as a result, he doesn't have to worry about a a peace process. He clearly doesn't want a peace process. Uh, His idea is to slowly but surely annex all of Palestinian territory and get away with it. And to a large extent, frankly, he's been successful. And, and the blame game between the military, the intelligence, and Netanyahu has been very, very intense. And, and that has further fueled criticism against him because of the fact that he's been using much of his time, instead of protecting Israelis, getting hostages out, to actually play that blame game and essentially say that he's not at fault here. I think an objective assessment would also point out that he's not entirely at fault here for the failure of the Israeli military there. But it tells you something about how divisive the political atmosphere already was in Israel. And even though the attacks have brought the country together in many different ways, they have, it has not led to a rally around the flag phenomena in the terms of people rallying around Netanyahu. That has not occurred. Now, it seems clear that his political career essentially will end as soon as this crisis ends. The only reason why uh, it hasn't ended yet is precisely because that in the middle of the crisis, there's no appetite to take that infighting any further. But unfortunately, that may be creating an incentive on his end to not allow the crisis to end in order to prolong his own political reign. Mm -hmm.
0: And that is essentially one big question that's being asked here in washington and i think the biden administration is increasingly moving into that direction that what is the end game here or what is essentially the strategy of what israel is doing in gaza um and it's not precisely clear if there is a military security or political strategy how much of this is revenge how much of it is tied to getting the hostages back what do you, where do you think there is an overlap or maybe a break between what Netanyahu is doing and what the Biden administration is pursuing?
1: Well, I'm not under the impression that there is much of a difference, to be frank with you, nor am I under the impression that the Biden administration has allowed the lack of clarity in terms of what are the Israelis really aiming to do here, to stand in the way of the Biden administration giving complete support to Israel. And to the extent that there are some diverging uh, goals, it seems to be more on the tactical level. The conversation in Washington essentially starts off with, Israel must destroy Hamas. Given that, what else do we need to do in terms of avoiding escalation, etc.? So, But it doesn't address the core issue of, you know, can Hamas truly be destroyed? if Hamas is destroyed, what will it be replaced by? And with what confidence do you think that it's not gonna lead to Hamas 2.0 or 3.0? Because we have our own experience in Iraq and Afghanistan and the the lessons there were very clear. The more civilians were being killed, the more recruitment that radical organizations have. And in this case, the degree of civilian deaths in proportion to Hamas fighters that are being killed is completely out of whack, even compared to America's numbers on Afghanistan, Yemen, and Iraq, which were also completely, unacceptably high in the first place. And I think the Biden administration's strategy has not been to prevent war crimes for these atrocities, but to manage them for Israel in order to make sure that the backlash becomes manageable, ensuring that the implications of reverberations in the region are manageable, not prevented, but manageable. And, And this, I think, is a very dangerous position for the United States to take because the manner in which the region is turning against the United States is according to a lot of people I've spoken to in the region, including Western journalists, such that it will be more difficult for the United States to bounce back from this than it was for the United States to bounce back from the illegal invasion of Iraq. And that says a lot.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Trina, I want to ask you about the broader regional policy, Middle East policy of this administration a little bit later. But let's first talk about Iran, Iran's role um, in this conflict immediately after the October 7 attack. There was a Wall Street Journal piece that said that Iran helped plot the attack on Israel over several weeks. It even uh, claimed that the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, Islamic Revolutionary Guards, gave the final go ahead in Beirut. Um, And that this was essentially an Iranian attack and the Israeli officials were also echoing some of these. But then we saw a pushback first coming from Tehran, um, basically saying that this was an independent operation uh, that they supported, but that they weren't planning. And also from Washington, we've heard um, from administration officials that they haven't seen a smoking gun, that this was plotted by Iran. What is... Iran's role in all of this? Explain this relationship with Hamas, um, this, you know, claim of the plotting, and also how essentially Iran is benefiting or not from this situation.
1: So on the one hand, when it comes to that story in Wall Street Journal, I, I think it's been largely debunked. The U.S. intelligence, the Israeli intelligence came out and said that they did not have any evidence for this. U.S. intelligence had picked up that the Iranian officials were actually surprised by the event. The idea that the heads of Hamas Islamic Jihad, the Iranian foreign minister, would be meeting bi-weekly in Beirut, and Israeli intelligence would not pick up on this, and as a result, be as surprised as they were on October 7th, is just simply beyond the realm of possibility. So a lot of the details in that report in order to back up the claim, we're frankly discrediting the claim rather than backing it up. But if you take a look at a broader issue, you can definitely make an argument mm-hmm. that one of the consequences of this, at least in the short term, is that it is putting a, a significant pause on any further normalization agreements with Iran, which is something that of course the uh, the Iranians would welcome. They see normalization as something that is aimed at isolating and containing Iran to once again organize the region against Iran. And, and one can definitely make the argument that from that standpoint, the Iranians have benefited. The Iranians have potentially also benefited from the fact that the Palestinian issue is once again a major issue for the Arab world in a way that it hasn't been for the last 10 years because of the Arab Spring and internal challenges that the Arab world has been facing. And now it's back topping the agenda in a way that the Iranians have sought and benefited from in the past, because it's a way for them to claim regional leadership. It's a way for them to transcend both Sunni Shia as well as Arab Persian divides. It's a way to put the Saudis uh, on the defensive, because the Saudis under MBS have really abandoned their Palestinians, or in advanced talks to normalize relations with Israel at the expense of the Palestinians. But at the same time, there's other things that I think have occurred here that are not to the benefit of the Iranians. And so, for instance, they were themselves in negotiations with Egypt and Jordan to normalize their relations with these two countries following their normalization with Saudi Arabia. This is a very critical component of their new strategy as they have given up on the idea of being able to come to terms with the United States in a sustainable way their way of getting around the sanctions that they believe the U.S. will never lift is to further integrate themselves with the region. And the first step is to make sure that there's normalization. And with Egypt in particular would be very symbolic because that's a relationship that has been suspended for more than 40 years now. But that process of normalizing with Jordan and Egypt has also been set back by this. So, uh, and moreover, with Iran's own internal problems, They've just had more than a year of protests. And even though the anniversary did not end up becoming as big as many had thought, there's no structural solutions that have been presented by the government. They remain deeply unpopular. At any point, you can once again see uh, a major uh, spark in the country and more protests. Under those circumstances, it, it seems extremely unlikely that they would be welcoming a conflict. If they wanted to welcome a conflict, it didn't make strategic sense for Hamas to attack alone from the south and not uh, have Hezbollah attack simultaneously from the north. So I, I think, again, going back to the origins of the question, that, that line of thinking so far based on the existing evidence has been completely wrong. But the fact that neither Hezbollah nor Iran wants an escalation does not mean that there won't be an escalation as long as the bombardment of Gaza continues.
0: hmm Yeah, let's um, elaborate on that because we're hearing both Washington and Tehran, at least publicly, sending very clear messages. And also privately, we hear through mediators that they don't want an escalation, that they don't want this to turn into a broader regional conflict. And so far, as far as Iran's allies, Hezbollah, even the Houthis, there have been skirmishes with Israel, but none of them have opened a new front into this war yet. But what are the scenarios that this can get out of control or essentially out of hand? We know the US is continuing its military buildup in the region as deterrence, as the administration calls it, but also signaling that they don't want an escalation. Same goes with Iran and allies. But What do you see as the dangers or potentials um, if the attacks on Gaza continue?
1: I think the U.S.'s strategy of seeking to prevent an escalation, and I do believe that the Biden administration does not want to see an escalation, does not want to see a war in the region uh, less than 12 months away from the 2024 elections. But the strategy that has been chosen, in my view, is a questionable one. And that is that the focus has been entirely on deterring Iran and Hezbollah from getting into the conflict. If we had a scenario in which the Iranians wanted to get into the war, but didn't need to get into the war, the emphasis on deterrence would make more sense. I think we're faced with the opposite situation. The Iranians and the Hezbollah do not want to get into this war, but may feel compelled to get into the war. And I'll explain why. But under that circumstance, a deterrence-only strategy is not likely to succeed. Now, what I mean with that they don't want to, but they may feel compelled. Well, again, I think the signs are clear. They're not looking for that fight. If they were, why they waited four weeks. But also, when it comes to them feeling compelled, the Israelis have mobilized 350 reservists. You don't need that to go into Gaza. If you're sitting in Lebanon, you're wondering, why are the Israelis doing that? Are they planning to go after Hezbollah afterwards? If they're successful in Gaza, if they actually manage to take out Hamas, is the next stop Southern Lebanon? And in that, also an attack on Iran because they know very well that an attack on Hezbollah very likely can uh, trigger an Iranian Iran. Now, we can make the assessment that the Israelis very likely don't want to go into Lebanon, but our assessment is not the important one. The important assessment is that of Hezbollah. What are they perceiving? And if they're perceiving that the Israelis are preparing themselves for such a fight while the United States is doing nothing in practice to restrain the Israelis, not just in Gaza, but elsewhere, then you may very well end up in a situation in which Hezbollah makes the decision that it's not that they are choosing war, but they think that war is upon them. And as a result, they intervene preemptively, essentially trying to complicate what Israel is doing in in, in Gaza and make sure that they're not sitting there and waiting for the Israelis to attack them. This is why I think the American strategy is not likely to succeed because it is not combined with an actual effort to also restrain Israel. If there was a very clear effort by by the Biden administration to also deter and restrain Israel, then I think the perception in Lebanon about what Israel's longer term plans are would also shift in a way that could actually dissuade them from thinking that they have to strike Israel before Israel strikes Lebanon. But so far, we have not seen any effort by the Biden administration to meaningfully restrain Israel. Pressing them for 20 truckloads of food, et cetera, and celebrating that on on social media really does not cut it. The United States has vetoed the resolution calling for a humanitarian pause at the UN Security Council. It was one out of only 14 countries that voted against a resolution at the UNGA calling for um, a humanitarian pause or a ceasefire. It has actively stood against it, And as long as that is the case and we're not seeing any meaningful restraint on the Israeli side by the U.S., the risk of escalation would remain very high and is very dangerous because it can also drag the U.S. into it.
0: Trita, let's uh, talk about, go back to the U.S. policy, the broader policy towards the region, the Middle East. We know the Biden administration came into power. Well, first of all, diplomacy with Iran was not made a priority. Um, The revival of the JCPOA, as candidate Biden had promised. um, And then the administration essentially championed the Abraham Accords as one of the main if not top priorities, towards the region. The promise of taking a harder line on Saudi Arabia was reversed after Russia's attack on Ukraine. So there's been a lot of, first of all, changes from what the candidate had promised and then what the President Biden is doing, and also the overall policy towards the region or a strategy or the lack of... Uh, seems to be backfiring now, backfiring now. I want you to talk about this and we saw in a way this culminate in a piece that National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan had published in Foreign Affairs where the editors had actually got, essentially go, had to go back and remove parts of that piece that were contradicted by the events of October 7th and after, just uh, a little after it was published. Um, Talk about the administration's overall policy towards the Middle East and what we are seeing essentially as this backlash to that.
1: So I think the administration's strategy towards the Middle East has had one very critical guiding star, which is to put the United States back on the same page as Israel. It's been described as going back to basics no more regime change, wars, et cetera. The bottom line was that the basics of America's foreign policy in the Middle East was the problem. The excesses grew out of the basics. The Iraq War, et cetera, grew out of the basics, and the basics was to pursue a hegemonic policy in the Middle East, where the United States would be the military hegemon, the dominant military power in the region. The administration has, despite early signals that it would be shifting away from that, has not only not shifted, it has doubled down on it. And I think the October 7th episode puts further light on how critical it has been for the administration to always be close to Israel on critical issues. That's exactly what we saw in the beginning of the administration when it chose to not go back into the JCPOA right away through an executive order, but instead renegotiate a deal and hope to get a longer and stronger deal that would be more acceptable to Israel and Saudi Arabia. The administration spent the first 10 or so weeks trying to coordinate and consult with them rather than actually going back into the deal. And this was a devastating mistake because the real window of opportunity, which the administration knew about, was in those first weeks of uh, Biden's term. And this was very much done because there were elements very high up in the administration who felt that the administration cannot afford to have a similar clash with the Israelis. And and Bibi and Netanyahu was the prime minister at the time, as Obama did during his term when he pushed for the JCPOA and Netanyahu essentially declared war on the JCPOA and felt that it was very critical for the United States to avoid that that avoiding that was a higher priority than going back into the JCPOA. And today we see that avoiding a clash with Israel is a higher priority than preventing escalation in the region, an escalation that actually could drag the United States into the war. Because if the escalation prevention was the priority, we would have seen pressure on Israel to restrain itself. We have not seen meaningful pressure by the administration on that.
0: hmm And finally, Trude, I want to ask, uh, you what how you think this is impacting you did mention the normalization the uh, Arab countries normalization with Israel but overall how this would impact the continuation of that it's certainly put a temporary halt uh, on on some of that process and how it would impact Iran's agreement with Saudi Arabia, the continuation of that normalization, um, essentially how this conflict would make any shifts in those?
1: So I think the administration's focus on, and I would actually say obsession, with uh, expanding the Abram Accord and bringing Saudi Arabia into it is further evidence of uh, the approach to the region that they've had that has been so problematic. I mean, we're talking about considering offering Saudi Arabia major nuclear concessions and the enrichment cycle, the fuel cycle, as well as a security pact similar to that of Article 5 in NATO. I mean, the United States has never gone that far in terms of a security arrangement with the Saudis. And all of that at the expense of the Palestinians, because the very premise of the Abraham Accord is the Palestinian issue is no longer that essential. Instead of resolving it, the United States should push to move beyond the Palestinian issue. Normalize relations between Israel and the Arab states, integrate Israel into the region in security sense, economic sense, and the Palestinians will simply have to deal with the fact that their destiny is to live uh, indefinitely under occupation. And the fact that these events have not caused a rethink about that very premise I think, uh, tells you how shockingly out of touch the administration is with the realities of the Middle East. Now, their thinking right now appears to be that this actually gives an opportunity for the Abrams Accord to expand and include Saudi Arabia because they're thinking that the very, very solid commitment they're giving to Israel right now should tell the Saudis of the benefit of a security pact with the U.S., that the U.S. will live up to that security pact. And as a result, Saudi Arabia should be more inclined to go with it. But again, we're not seeing anything to deal with the fundamental issue of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict there. And, And even if they were to sign such an agreement, which I personally find very, very unlikely in the next 12 months, if it doesn't address this issue of the Palestinians with something real, not just some breadcrumbs and some symbolic measures, then. I fear that it actually will be the seed that will bring about more violence in the region because it essentially tells the Palestinians all diplomatic paths for Palestinians to achieve their rights to have their own state are leading nowhere. And the United States is now further closing those paths by moving beyond the Palestinian issue, normalizing relations with Israel, without Israel giving any concessions to the Palestinians that can be termed meaningful. And under those circumstances, I fear it will just be a question of time in which you will see the Palestinian effort for an independent state to turn more violent rather than to stay in the diplomatic track, given the fact that the diplomatic track is yielding nothing and is being buried by the United States.
0: Trita, I want to thank you for coming back on the Iran podcast. Great conversation.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: That was Trita Parsi, the executive vice president at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft in Washington and an associate professor at Georgetown University. And thank you for listening to the Iran Podcast. You can find us on all major podcast apps. So do subscribe and leave a review and rating for us. You can also follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. Iran Podcast is fiscally sponsored by the Center for International Policy. And I'm your host, Negar Mortazavi. Until next time, goodbye.